consider my art very visceral. It's a visceral act. You know, when I paint, I crank the music, I drink a lot of caffeine, and I just kind of let the physical act. It happens fast and it's messy and but it's very, then I'm very connected to it. Those are the, some of the best art I've done is the stuff that happens the quickest. The less thinking, the better. Rodney Durso is founder of Artbridge, a New York nonprofit that empowers emerging artists to transform New York's ubiquitous construction scaffolding into large-scale art exhibits. In part two, we focus on Rodney's second life as an artist and social entrepreneur, forming Artbridge in 2009 to give emerging artists unprecedented exposure by exhibiting their work on construction, scaffolding and buildings across the city. Rodney discusses his mission and the impact this innovative initiative has had on the lives of underrepresented artists and how serendipity led to its scaling internationally. We also explore art as therapy, procrastination, curiosity and his process of creation and much, much more. I hope you enjoy the candor generosity of spirit and artistic social enterprise of Rodney Durso. And yes, slowly but surely, I started to paint. I I went to the building that I'm currently in my studios on West 26th Street, and I found a photographer who gave me a little piece of his studio. I rented a small space, and I just started to um, make marks on paper with India ink. I didn't know what I was doing. I was just like, butcher paper, literally a roll of butcher paper, scrolled out along the wall, like eight feet or so, with thumbtacks, and I just took India ink and a big brush, and I was just, it was really visceral. It was therapy. It was art therapy for me. I'd been wrapped tight in my brain and stressed and tired, and I just needed to express myself somehow, and that was the way I did it. And that early experience, that catharsis yeah. that you were going through, what was, what was coming out? I mean, you, you mentioned earlier on you were just this walking antenna. Mm-hmm. Was this internal expression of internal anguish, pain, anger, or was it stuff you were picking up in the, from the people around you in the city? Yeah, I think it was, it was basically about, you know, fear, anxiety, pain, um, indecision, you know, all the human emotions. And that's, that's what was, I was expressing. And when I look back at the, some of those really early pieces, it's just like some of it's just giant circular swatches, swaths of India ink, big blotches, you know, Rorschach looking things. And yeah, I have them in a drawer somewhere. Um, it was just, I also didn't want to use any color because I just knew that I didn't even know how to use color. I didn't know how to do it. I was just like, I'm just going to, it's like vomit. I just needed to vomit out some emotion with black India ink. That was some of my first, uh, yeah. It's funny when you talk about black India ink, we, uh, we interviewed Chantel Martin, who's a, an artist here okay. in the city who only uses um, black marker pens oh. on large scale um, white surfaces uh, and it's all about expression okay. of identity and the search for self uh-huh. okay. and really looks into the existential question of are you you and who are you and that is the very nature of her art and she's remained on that track for years now and it's interesting that you can start in one place and move but you didn't stick with black and white you moved into yeah. other materials, you've embraced color, you've embraced collage. So talk about the influences. Yeah. Well, look, I have a, an endlessly curious brain and I'm always interested in, you know, pushing it and learning something new, learning a different way of expressing myself. I love color. You know, that's what that's why I loved graphic design because I loved color um, and type, typography. And I brought that into my artwork. 
eventually. Um, so I just think I got, eventually I kind of got bored with just using India ink and past, pastel. I went from just India ink, then to India ink and pastel, then India ink, pastel, and acrylic, and then I threw in pencil, and then I started to add in collage and then learn different techniques along the way. So, um, I'm sorry, you asked for influences, right? You know, yeah, the re- I mean, the reason I ask it is we we interviewed a professor of creativity and cognition at Columbia, Michael Hanson, Hatchett Hansen. And he, he educated us to the nature of creativity, that it's influenced by the, the three components, the social, the temporal, and the material, that we're everything around us. There's nothing that's new. Everything is just uh, iterative. And when you start to think about it that way, you start to see patterns in the way that work is done. And, you know, you take what Picasso said, the genius, genius steals. I'm just wondering what were those influences and what inspired you, particularly given you said you're an antenna, there must have been things happening at the time that you were you were referencing or things that were inspiring you. I think um, I'm really, um, I don't you know, I don't know what, I know that I have a whole lot of work from the um, financial crash of 2008, a whole bunch of stuff, all ripped out of the Wall Street Journal, you know, I have these crazy um, kind of graffiti, graffiti-ish um paintings from that era. I also have a whole bunch of graffiti-ish, messy uh, paintings from uh, George Bush getting elected, because that freaked me out, especially (laughs) the second time. So those influences, you know, political, social, financial stuff, it's stuff that's out happening in the world. So that certainly affects me and feeds me, you know. Um, I have this whole series called What is Love After a Big Breakup. So yeah, I guess I'm just using my art as a, a filter or just a an extension of what's happening in my life at the moment, you know? People have said that um, my paintings are either, you know, um, they're self-portraits in a way, you know? Weird, distorted-looking self-portraits, but a lot of them are. A lot of them end up looking like plant life of some kind. But specific influences, I can't point to anything except some of the ones I talked about earlier, like, you know, stuff that I would... Like, when I need... When I've run out of juice, run out of ideas i take myself to museums it's like i need i go to moma you know i look at i look at the um kandinsky's and clay's and you know starry night and you know whatever i look that that old is old school right you know it's not uh, that i grew up on that stuff and i love looking at it and it feeds me but really when i run out of ideas i go to museums and galleries do you have to always be coming up with ideas or do you what's the i mean i no, I, no concept of what the average day in the life of an artist is. I wouldn't expect that you're you're working every day of the week. You can't. I, I can't. You know, I'm lucky if I'm going in there uh, twice a week for four hours, something like that. Because you know, you you know, you know, the average job you're you've got a to do list and uh, emails to return and tasks and deliverables, right? And I compare it very. I compare it often to the difference between being an artist or a graphic designer. Craft designer, I had budgets and calendars and deliverables, you know what it's like. And uh, you had to do, get stuff to the printer. But you look at a canvas or piece of paper on the wall and there's no one telling you anything. You just have to make, (laughs) you have to make art somehow. And sometimes I'll literally just start writing like, I have no idea what I'm doing. I was literally write that on the art, you know, big mark, you know, I have no idea or what am I doing or who am I? I literally would just write this stuff on the paper. Who am I today? Because looking at a blank piece of paper or blank canvas is almost like looking into a mirror. And that's not fun all the time. You know, you're like looking at yourself going, who am I now? You know, and Thursday at 10 o'clock in the morning, like who cares? You know, like I, I can't 
I can't get that deep and that introspective all the time. It's exhausting or it's like, it just doesn't happen. So it's limited, you know, it's, uh, it's almost like going to the gym. Like you got to keep doing it. It's not always fun. Sometimes good stuff happens. Sometimes nothing happens, but it's like, you got to keep doing it. I've heard someone talking recently in one of our interviews about the relationship. It was more with writing, the relationship with the page and the pen and how it's a two-way relationship that it isn't just you and it's how you then that starts to feed you ideas back from what you've created then comes back to you and it's not necessarily in the moment but it could be a day later two days later that's exactly right i mean i one of the first things i do when i put up a new piece of paper or canvas is i kind of run my hand on it you know i kind of like get in touch with it <laughs> and i look for information i look for something i don't know what i'm looking for but i'm looking for something you know so I'll put down a layer of paint and yeah, come back the next day or two days later and then you get some feedback. It's just feedback, you know, like, okay, now what do I do? It's like I'm looking for, the painter, the painting tells me what to do next almost, you know, by letting it breathe, leaving it alone, coming back and you look at it and you're like, first, you know, my first thought is like, oh, whatever I did yesterday sucks. Then I go back and I'm like, oh, it's actually not so bad. I can, I can make it better today. And that's always the tough part about painting is knowing when to stop. That's like the biggest question as a painter or an artist of it to me of any kind is when do you stop and say it's done yeah because it's different to a writer where you come to a natural end of a story that is finding that end mm. is something that's conscious but with a painter yeah when do you take your last brush stroke yeah and sometimes they never finish occasionally i'll go back to something that's 10 years old and just make a little mark on it just because i can and it's fun and you're like who cares and you make a little mark the other thing is it's, um, you know, this is not like a digital process. There's no command Z on a painting, you know, which, you know, and, and I, in a way I love that, you know, I love that there's no digital aspect to my art. I don't do it any, I don't do anything digitally and that's on purpose. You know, it's like my whole career before this was digital, digital, digital. And, and so to do everything manually and textually is, is very, is a relief, you know, it's nice. It's a, it's a nice just space to hold instead of doing things digitally. Because your work is an uh, interesting combination of uh, graphic and organization of color, type, and imagery. Is that being deliberate because of your background in design and communications? That you've, you've, for example, you take articles, you mentioned the Wall Street Journal, you take media and you, you, re you create pieces of work that are representations of whatever you're feeling and thinking, but media reference points seem to be play a significant role in a lot of the work that you've created. Why is that? I just think it's the it's the material that surrounds us. It's the it's whatever's in the air or in the news or in my brain at the moment. And um, yeah, the, I, I love the combination. I love bringing it all together and mushing it all together. And you can't make a mistake hardly. But you know, but as but as far as like the the influence of my design on my painting, it's basically I know how to lay out a page. Like, I'm not afraid of white space. That That's big for me. It's like, I like white space. I like letting things, giving a space on a page, you know? Sometimes I look at art that's just like a big mush and there's no, you don't know where, your eye doesn't know where to go for, that's the way I look at it. A good painting, I feel like, or a piece of art or whatever it is, like your eye knows where to go and it's it's not chaotic or it's not, um, you know, it's, there's a place for your eye to rest naturally. It's almost like looking like a good ad layout. That's the way I think about it. A good advertisement layout, good page layout. Like your eye knows where to track. 
So it feels that way with a painting as well. And I think that's why I'm good at some of it I'm good at because I know how to lay out a page. I know how to leave breathing space. I understand like volume and texture and color and, you know, intensity. It's also, mus- these are musical terms also, you know, volume, color, texture, intensity, you know, allegro, you know, these things. It, they relate to design, art, des- uh, music. So I feel like I have a sense of those things. In, and going in, back in, to that, um, in those Emerson, Lake Palmer, that four, what do you call yeah, it? The, the four? The, yeah, the, um, yeah, that the the four, the whatever you call it, yeah, you know, those yeah. four keys, yeah, yeah, uh, yeah, that abstraction or that um, dissonant tone yes, or whatever, uh-huh. and um, that's something you seek in your in the in your work. Yeah, look, I I love I love that, and I don't, yeah, I don't know how to describe that actually, but yeah, I love something that feels a little abstract or dissonant. You know, for example, when I do collage, I'm always I rip the paper, I don't cut the paper. Cutting the paper is too takes too much thinking and intention, and then you. But when you rip it, it just happens. And it's just very visceral. I consider my art very visceral. It's a visceral act. You know, when I paint, I crank the music, I drink a lot of caffeine, and I just kind of let the physical act. It happens fast. And, once it happens. Yeah, once it happens, right? It doesn't always <laughs> yeah. happen. Once it, and it's fast and it's messy, and but it's very, then I'm very connected to it. Those are the, some of the best art I've done is the stuff that happens the quickest. The less thinking, the better. So how do you deal, you know, I've, everyone has to confront procrastination, but how do you deal or embrace it? Because again, it's something we, we've we explored in the podcast with Andrew Santello, who wrote a book about procrastination. And that's there's a lot of reference points in history of people that have been incredibly creative, that have been great procrastinators. And by waiting, it's resulted in great outcomes. It's a good topic. Yeah, uh, it's a good, very good topic. Um, yeah, I'm a big procrastinator as well. I can be, I can be. And and I feel like when I'm, when I'm not, I'm very prolific. And I don't mean that to sound so, so, you know, highfalutin, but when I, when I'm out of my procrastination, I work a lot. I get a lot of stuff made. You know, in my studio, I've got four or 500 pieces of art, either in a drawer or book or whatever, a lot of stuff. And like there, I look back, you know, I've been cataloging stuff. I have a studio, um, a studio manager. She's been cataloging things for me. And it's funny, there were years where nothing happened. I don't know, 2007, for example, there's like 150 pieces and 2009, there's four pieces, you know, this kind of thing. So yeah, there's definitely procrastination has creeped into my life and it does on a daily basis. And, um, you know, one of the, I'm in, I'm in a couple of 12 step programs and we always say it's a program of action. It's a program of action. Like the minute I get stuck in my head and I start to spin, you know, so I call it spinning and I start to spin. It's like, I just got to think to myself, this is a program of action. Like get out of my own way. <laughs> <laughs> and make something. Take a step. Just do just do something. You know, just do something. And inevitably that helps. Just do something. Well, one thing you did uh was to set up a program called Artbridge, which is, I believe, exhibiting the work of emerging artists on construction scaffolding around the city. Tell us about how this came about, this idea, and how did you uh, manage to I mean, obviously you've you've got a, a good track record of doing entrepreneurial ventures. But this is a, a venture with purpose. Yeah, well, it's when I started to paint, and I very quickly realized that like getting your work seen by anyone who matters was virtually impossible. You know, it's like a hermetically sealed world. The fine art world mm-hmm. is, you know, getting your work into a gallery is just impossible, as I've found, or it used to, it used to be maybe. But anyway, so I would walk to my studio, 
only a couple of blocks. And at the time, our building, my building was under construction or scaffolding. And now I've learned, you know, technically what was going on. It's called Local Law 11, where every every five years they have to get up on scaffolding and check the quality of the bricks and and this kind of stuff. So my building was under scaffolding, sidewalk bridges, what they're called. And I would look up there every day, and there would be big, green, ugly plywood panels. I thought, wow, that's that's kind of interesting. And then I, on the other end of things, I'd be talking to artists who couldn't get their work seen, including me. So I first hatched this idea that I want to put my art on my building. Mm. And that's going to be my claim to fame. My art's going to be seen on West 23rd Street. And I went to the building owners and managers and I said, I can make, I can set up this art exhibit on your building. Are you interested? And they said, great. I gave them a proposal. They gave me 5,000 bucks. And I pulled together curators and 26 artists. And again, it's like one of these things like, how did you do it? I don't know. I just figured it out. I just figured it out. I had everything shot, you know, high res uh, digitally, found a printer, printed these things giant scale and ended up wrapping this building, this thousand unit apartment building with art. And it was going to be just a one-off venture. I thought, okay, this is cool. I did it. It's none of my art, by the way. This is all other artists. Somewhere along the line, I had that realization that's like, this can't be about me. And wrapped the whole building and it was a big success. And someone, actually, it was probably my brother. My brother's always been that little... Thorn. Uh, thorn, yeah. yeah. Thorn, good thorn, I guess. Whatever, devil, angel. He said, you can't stop. He's like, you got to do this again. And it was almost like the clouds parted and like, you know, the Jesus beam, ding, you know, that moment of like, and he's, he's like, I was like, he's right. I got to keep doing this. And that was, I don't know, 2009, March of 2009. So it's been 11 years. Yeah. And we, and- we, celebrate, yeah, we celebrated 10 years last year. And at first, I treated it like a full-on startup. It was just me in my apartment. Again, it always goes back to me in front of my computer in my apartment. And then hired a person and hired another person. And um, and then had no idea what nonprofit was. Had no idea what I was doing. I ran it like a scrappy startup. I thought, I was like, oh, I'll get to the nonprofit part. And uh, and then someone, I hired someone who knew everything about nonprofit. And she convinced me this is how you do it. And she taught me the ropes. Yeah, it's been a long, interesting journey. So why, as a matter of interest, why a nonprofit? Because it's the only way to get everyone on board, you know, because um, the building owners don't want to pay, you know, they've got so many expenses during a construction process or during this local all level. They have so many expenses. I wanted to do something that served everybody, the artistic community, the building community, the tenants, the passersby, pedestrians, you know, something that served everybody. Like I didn't, I wanted something where they couldn't find a reason to say no. And this is one of those things. No one can seem to find a reason to stop it. And what impact has it had on some of the artists that you've um, exhibited? A couple of them has, have gained some more um, recognition and gallery shows. And um, our most recent one, um, we have an artist who was in the Whitney Biennial because of our wow. bridge. That's amazing. Just crazy. I mean, they gave him a giant space. I'm not talking about a small, you know, two by two frame. They gave him a gigantic space at the Whitney Biennial. So it happens sometimes. And other artists have gone on to do other things, you know. They get a they get a gallery show or they sell their work or whatever. But it's really taking on a life of its own. It's it's really beyond what I could imagine, in fact. You know, we've we now have an exclusive two-year relationship uh, a contract with New York City, Department of Buildings and Department of Cultural Affairs, um, where for the next 24 months, it's a little less now because it started a little while ago. We're the only ones allowed to um, put art on construction scaffolding. And now we have projects at the Google building, a partnership with Google, which has been great. They've they've really trusted us to do. Um, in fact, on the 16th Street Google building, we've got work on both sides, 700 feet on one side, 
Facebook just uh, hired us to do a project. So yeah, it's really starting to take off in a big way. You know, we used to do four or five projects a year. This month, we're putting up 17 projects um, because, um, you know, I hope I get the details right. You know, I have an executive director. I don't run this thing. There's a staff of four. I'm on the board. But Stephen's the executive director, so he knows the details better than me. But essentially, under the um, Bloomberg no, but yeah, under the Bloomberg administration, they let us do this work. De Blasio came in and was more interested in other other things, maybe public housing and such. So it became less important, and the budget went away. And then um, working behind the scenes with some lobbyists and city council members, we got on their radar again, and they gave us this new um, this new permission. It's a program. And and then all of a sudden the floodgates opened. Then everyone we were trying to work with before started calling us, and that's how it, that's how it all of a sudden became. It, it's really blowing up, and it's it's pretty amazing. And I now now I look at it, I'm like, wait, I I did that. Uh, wait, what is? That? <laughs> I have that moment of recognition. Like, wait, I had something to do. Turn it slightly towards you. I had yeah. something to do with that. So mm. this is something that presumably can scale beyond yes. just New York. I yes. mean, this could if you think about the. Yes the building construction, the infrastructure yes. just around the country and the amount of underrepresented artists. Correct. This has the capacity to be huge. Yeah, and I think it's going to be, you know, it's just a matter of opportunity, money, manpower. Those are really the factors. You know, the opportunity meaning a space, a building, a wall, a fence, whatever. The budget, someone who's willing to pay for it and the manpower, people to carry it out. In fact, in 2000, so 2008 I started, 2009... I have a lot of friends and family and business connections in in Italy. And 2009, there was an earthquake that destroyed a town called L'Aquila in the you know northwest northeast of Rome. So I ran over there because my cousin's a professor at the university, and the town was in shambles. And I looked at him and I'm like, I should be able to do Art Bridge here. And he's like, Okay. He introduced me to the mayor, the president of the university. The mayor gave us 10,000 euros that day. And he's like, Come do it. So I, you know, pulled together a team, found this uh, incredible curator, this woman, Veronica, who was the curator. And we, we couldn't quite figure out how to do ArtBridge there. So they started their own nonprofit. It became kind of a sister organization. And the version of ArtBridge they did over there is called Offsite Art. And they've done an incredible job. I mean, really, it's, it's rivals or surpasses what we've done. And the town is amazing. You know, it's really, it's a big visual feature of that city now. And that's already, that's, it's, it's a long time. So those, the construction there is almost complete. So those projects are probably going to wind down shortly. But so anyway, yes, it is scalable, you know, and uh, yeah, and we're always looking for projects. And how do artists find you or do you find them? Do you select them? Is there a submission yeah. process? Yeah, it's, bo- it's both, you know, some, some um, property owners or, you know, opportunities come with an artist. They'll be like, we want to do this. And then the artist we want to use, or they'll ask us to submit or, um, I mean, they'll ask us to recommend, or we have a submission page on our website, and then we can kind of match them up. So there's, yeah, there's always opportunity for artists as long as we can keep getting opportunity to to do the projects. And what's happened to your art in the meantime? What's great is I've, I now have time to go back to my own art, and I'm now doing more of my own art. In fact, uh, come full circle. So, um I'm um, I'm making more art, and I've had a couple of I have a couple of opportunities to present some work in Italy. But literally because of this outbreak of this uh, this virus, it's changed everything. I have an opportunity to um, to do something at the Biennale in Venice, but the Biennale was just changed. It's now going to be in August, so I don't know if it's going to happen. You know, that's kind of on hold. But, but you've exhibited um, at places. Art Basel and yeah, in I Miami. Have. 
had Art Basel and Scope and some of the other art fairs, the other art fair. And uh, I did exhibit in Venice at another show. So yeah, I've, I've gotten my work out there. It's made it, it's made its, it's way around. It's there. Yeah, it's out there. You know, you can't make a living. I mean, at least I can. I haven't been able to figure out a way to make a living, but I have been able to get my art out there, which is great. It's very satisfying. But you're suddenly making an impact with ArtBridge. Yeah, ArtBridge is making an impact. There's no doubt. Okay. One of the reasons we do this is to understand uh, the impact that serendipity has had on people's lives. What impact, what chance encounters, happy accidents, serendipitous events or encounters that have defined or changed the direction of your journey? Well, it's interesting. The one I was just describing about the project, uh, the Offsite Art in Italy, um, you know, we have at our building on West 26th Street, we have this open studio. It's called the Highline Open Studio. We do twice a year. It's actually happening this coming weekend, 7th, 8th, and 9th of March. And I was showing my work, and this woman walks in, an Italian woman, and we start chatting. I tell her about my connection to Italy and this possibility of starting. This is back in 2009. And I said, you know, there's this earthquake, and we want to do Art Bridge and blah, blah, blah. She goes, well, I'm a curator, and I'm looking for work. She just strolled in off the street into my studio. That became this woman, Veronica, who started the whole thing. So serendipitous, you know? Yeah. I love connecting the dots and you see where these things come from. Okay, what's your perspective on risk-taking, embracing an uncertainty and fear of failure? I have a bit of a problem with risk-taking because I do it. Yeah, clearly. Yeah, <laughs> I have a problem with it. It's a little bit of like... you got your back catalog. It's one of my blind spots, to be quite honest. You know, it's a little bit of, I call it a character defect because I tend to... I have this, you know, I don't know what it is. Like, I'll have an idea and I'll say like, what can go wrong? Or, or another thing Another thing I often say is, how hard can this be? <laughs> so it's not always good, but it's an adventure, you know? It's an but adventure. Uncertainty doesn't seem to phase you. It's interesting. Sometimes it does. I can get into that uncertainty, procrastination loop with certain things. I can. There are a couple of things in my mind that I've been in this procrastination, uncertainty loop for months. So a friend of mine said, well, how long have you been thinking about you know, that thing? And I, he's like, what, a couple of days? And I said, how about a couple of months? You know, I wake up sometimes. I mean, this is personal. And you know, I wake up in fear most days. Really, I wake up in fear most days. I open my eyes. In the first five or six seconds, it's like, okay, new day. And then all of a sudden, the world pours in. That's the way I describe it. The world pours in. And all of a sudden, I feel like I'm like solving problems and fighting demons. And I, it's 4.30 in the morning. I haven't moved. You know, I'm still looking up at the ceiling from my bed. So, um, But it doesn't stop you from taking action. Depends. Sometimes. Like I said earlier, it's a program of action. Like sometimes I can just be like, I'm doing it. There are times when I am feeling, sometimes I do do that, and but other times it's, uh, I think more times than not, I'm in action, but certainly I get stuck, you know, I do get stuck for sure. But the idea of risk is exciting to me, which is part of my, you know, obsessive, addictive behavior. Risk is exciting to me. So when you look back, you must look back with confidence that the steps you've taken have been successful. So how does that prepare you for what you want to do over the next 10, 15 years and where you see your work and your ArtBridge project going. Yeah. I think moving forward, I'd like to be a little bit more, have a little bit more intent about what I'm doing instead of jumping into something because it's like sexy and flashy and shiny. You know, I, I have that tendency to like jump at the flashy, sexy, shiny, shiny thing. Like, oh, I'm going to do that because it looks cool. I think I'd rather have more intention about what I'm doing and a bit more of a plan about things. And in fact, I started about a month ago as ArtBridge needed more help and hired more people, they just staffed up. I said, you know what, I'm going to jump in and help. So now I work there a couple of hours a week. I'm helping them rebuild their website. 
So that feels intentional. It feels like structure. That feels more, I hate to say adult, I don't know. It feels better to me. But yeah, I think going forward, I'd like to have a little bit more structure and intention. But I can't say, I, I'm not sure where it leads. You know, art is, art's a kooky world. It's a weird business. It's it's hard to even call it a business. And um, I think I'm going to keep plowing ahead at, at, you know, the way I'm doing now, which is, you know, four hours every couple of days I can handle, but not more than that. And my studio manager pushes me to do stuff. You know, I applied for, um, there's something called the American Academy in Rome. And I spent a couple of weeks there in 2016. I applied for that. We'll see if it happens. Although with the corona virus, maybe they're canceling their summer. I don't know. But yeah, I'm always pushing ahead a little bit. Where does curiosity contribute to your work? I think it fuels my work. Mm. Yeah, I think I'm curious. Curious. It, and sometimes it's um, it's not always great because I get bored easily and then I'm like curious about the next thing. So I have to temper that. And that's all with the curious about those next shiny objects. Yeah, you're yeah. Because I, yeah, I have to say to myself, okay, that's shiny and sexy, but do I really need to go there? Do I really need to do that? Whatever it is. There's a Japanese term that we reference, uh, ikagi, which is intersection of what you're good at and what you're passionate about or what you love. Mm. Is this a fair description of you? It just, it reminds me of the, um, reminds me of doing my, craft design work in my painting being in that zone of yeah being in that zone of feeling like you, my brain shuts off and I'm just working you know like it's that, that that's where that feels really good right the brain is not thinking you're just working and I think that's where what I'm good at and what I love comes together yeah we consider education to be critical and key positive component of society. If you were given the keys to the mayor's office or the White House, what would you do to change the fortunes of a generation of youth? For education purposes? Yeah. Mm -hmm. I'd say that everyone has to learn how to play a musical instrument. That'd be a good one. Seriously. Ever? I mean, I feel like, I mean, my experience is piano, and I do feel like my left and my right brain are developed sort of equally because of the left and the right hand that you use to play the piano. The two things can't have to work independently. I mean, I'm ambidextrous. I can write my name upside down and backwards. And I think it's because of the way my brain developed playing the piano. Yeah, I think everyone should learn how to play a musical instrument. It develops a part of your brain that not everything else does. Yeah, that's a good one. Going on to the quickfire questions. What principles do you stand by? <laughs> I can control no one and nothing. <laughs> that's a big one for me is that everything's going to happen, whether it's I have anything to do with it or not. I mean, I, I'm only responsible for, I say, I call it my side of the street. I'm only responsible for what I can say or do. And the rest is out of my control, you know? And that's been a, a big lesson for me. It's been a big lesson for me, you know, letting people have their reaction to whatever it is. You know, I can only do my part and I'm only responsible for how I react. Um, you know, the days of trying to control everything and everyone, I've just done can't do that having the recognition the understanding that we have the ability to control our reaction is a very powerful characteristic yeah. so i think yeah. it's good what hard choices have you had to make that might have been tough at the time but turned out to be the right decision i don't know how to answer that um you don't have to yeah because <laughs> sure. i feel people like say they're still to come <laughs> yeah still to come because i feel like i've made a lot of mistakes i guess is why i'm thinking yeah. that. so i feel like i've made a lot of mistakes well my brother's mother-in-law said something to me about regrets. 
And I said, oh, I have a ton of regrets. And she's like, you're too young to have regrets. I'm like, you kidding me? I have plenty of regrets. I mean, um, yeah. So I don't know. This is just life. Where do you go to discover new ideas? Apart from MoMA. Apart from, right. I would say um, some of it is um, driving. is super relaxing to me. My brain is very free when I'm driving. My brain is very free when I'm riding my bicycle or running. Um, and I think that's where new ideas come. Or even, um, even like in a hot shower, you know, places where my brain shuts off and I'm just, you know, in that, um, that very free meditative zone, I guess. That's where new ideas sometimes, where sometimes they just pop up, you know. Ideas come from nowhere, or they come from the universe, or they come from God, or who knows where they come from. It's just a matter of whether you can capture them, harness them, need them, notate them. Get them know, on the wall. Get them on the wall, get, right? get them on that scaffolding. Yeah, exactly. All right. What is one problem that we have that's worth solving? As a society? Oh, boy. Jeez, <laughs> I, I don't know. Hmm. There are so many. I wouldn't know where to start, really problem plastic yeah. <laughs> straws plastic straws there you go well there's quite a few people have said that <laughs> um if you could return to one night one day in history yeah where when and with who yeah. to see who to do what yeah i think um 1989 the fall of the berlin wall huh? i was there before and after i was there in college you know when it was still east germany yeah and standing at Brandenburg Gate, looking over the, you know, past the guards through uh, the Brandenburg. Checkpoint Charlie. Yeah, check, and Checkpoint Charlie too, right? And, uh, but Brandenburg Gate is just that beautiful structure dividing east and west. And I have a photograph of me standing there in 19, I don't know, 87 or something, um, looking across, seeing the Trabants, those ugly East German cars and the guys with the guns. And then going back afterwards, you know, I don't know, I've been back two or three times. Now there's a Starbucks on the other side of the Brandenburg Gate. But, you know, the day or the, those days leading up to the wall falling, you know, the Soviet bloc and East Germany and all that stuff, watching, I was watching intently on CNN at the time. That was like the main news news, news feed, right? And I, I almost went. I almost hopped on a plane and went. I guess I just lost courage or I don't know why I didn't go, but I almost went. But that's where I would like to be. If I could go back to one day in time, I'd like to be there for that moment, helping them pull down that effing wall. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, quite a historic yeah. moment in history. Yeah. What's a question that no one asks you that you wish they would? I don't know. I'm drawing a blank. I don't know. I don't. Uh, you're you're covering quite a few yeah, of them, actually. That's fine. We can, you're covering we can, a lot. We now we've got a lot, a lot of de- here. So. A, lot of, a lot of detail. Uh, there. Who has made you reevaluate yourself? I don't know if it's he. It's a, if it's not a who, you know, I talked earlier about being in a twelve step program. That uh, recovery from. Um, that's made me revive it myself. I mean, that's been an intense personal journey about recovery, and that's entirely what it's about: is tearing it down and you know tearing it down to to the studs, let's call it, or to the you know to the ground and building it up again. Um, you know, the, the the biggest learning for me is that you know there's there is some higher power. Look, you can, you can call it God, but I don't have a religious background, so I don't I don't have the dogma part of it. But you know, God could be an acronym for you know. I call it group of drunks. But <laughs> oh, I've not heard that one. <laughs> or uh, great outdoors or, you know, guaranteed overnight delivery, I've heard. So, <laughs> but yeah, tearing it down. Um, I think I think that program and the 12 steps and the, that fellowship and the network and the support and all that stuff is, has, 
has really just been my, one of my greatest teachers. All right. Being in for your art, for the design, the work you've done in agencies, um, so involved technology, how do you keep up with it today? Hmm. Kind of can't, right? It's just it's off to the races all the time. I, I do what I can. I use technology. Like I said, I don't use it in my art. I use it in my in my life. And I mean, for business, of course, you know. I remember back in the day when, you know, Macs were daisy chained together mm-hmm. and this kind of stuff. I was an ex I was an expert. We didn't need an IT guy, but now I need an IT guy to do all this stuff. Can't keep up with it really. Um I don't use technology in my in my work really. I mean, I use of course the tools, you know, the Mac and the phone and the, all this stuff. But uh I find that a lot of technology kind of fights each other and there are too many there are too many disparate um interest in technology that are fighting for your attention and, um, you know, the way you have to update your apps, you know, this kind of stuff is just mind numbing and gets in the way, you know, there should be a way around that. And, but, um, I think, um, social media is like an, is a, is a terrifying monster to me. It's not just you. Yeah. It's, it's, it's weird. And it's like, what is it for? And it's like, to me, I look at it like Zuckerberg has found a way to monetize self-esteem basically, mm. you know, that's, that's what it's a, about. Yeah, that's- it's a really good ref- that's, yeah. that's what it's about, right? Like, I'm good if you like me. If you don't like, like with a, the thumb up. If you don't, then I'm not good. And it has an exact, and, it ha- and the other thing I think of is like, if it wasn't posted, it didn't happen. That's a weird concept, right? But it's kind of true. Like, oh, that didn't really happen. I didn't, I didn't see that on social media. So what are you talking about, you know? But I get sucked into it just like everybody else. You know, I, I try to have some kind of, see, you know, I always, fight between dismissing it out of anger or resentment or trying to stay in it in some reasonably healthy way, you know, to be part of the conversation, just to be tangentially kind of sort of part of the conversation so you feel like a normal person. <laughs> so you don't feel that out of it. When I should ask, I mean, if anyone wants to follow you on mm. the web or social media, where would they just find Just my you? name. So it's just your name. Rodney Durso. Yeah. In Instagram, on Insta- all the same Instagram and Facebook. It's Rodney Durso. Yeah, at Rodney Durso. It's the okay. same thing. Mm-hmm. All right, and the website. It's just money. RodneyDurso.com. <laughs> Easy. <laughs> Feel like an advertisement. Yeah. Um, www. The impossible. Yeah. <laughs> the imp- yeah. The impossible question. What would your advice be to someone that's just about to graduate, uh, leave university, go to, s- mm-hmm. or going to study, who's got a dream or a grand ambition, but has been told? Forget it. That that's just impossible. I love that question because it's um, it's kind of the story of my life. You know, it's sad in a way that um, that that's even said to people. Don't try it, or it's too tough, or you'll never make a living. I mean, it's all kind of smoke and mirrors, and it's based on fear, and it's none of it's real. None of it's real. You know, because because you can make a living doing absolutely anything that you want. Look, as long as as long as you're in that place, like one of the questions you asked me earlier about, like that you're good at and that you love, yeah. if you can get into that zone, then you're kind of unstoppable. And it's not about you'll be rich and successful. It's about being happy and productive. And if you're happy and productive, then someone's going to pay you to do something. You know, I mean, um, so, you know, the advice is is definitely do not stop, right? Just keep going. And to me, you know, I often think that it's really determination and stick to itness that makes successful people. You don't have to be the most talented. Definitely not. 
It's that's come through again and again, the power of persistence. Yeah, it's just persistence at all. That's all it is. I mean, I look at it from this age thinking like, I wish someone told me that, you know, like, um, yeah, I wish someone had told me that. But that's really, it's just about persistence because you'll just, because enough people will stop um, telling you to, they'll stop telling you to stop if you just keep doing it. Because <laughs> then they can relax. They're like, oh yeah, he just, oh, he's the one who does that thing. Oh, he'll be fine. Just leave him alone. He's doing it all the time, whatever it is. He must he must enjoy it. Just let him do it. You know? So um yeah, that the advice is just keep doing it. Just like put your head down and if you love it, you know, is if your motivation is to make someone else happy, then you're in the wrong thing. If your motivation is to make the parents happy or the teacher happy or the boyfriend happy, then you're doing the wrong thing. But if you're doing what you love, if you wake up every morning excited about whatever it is. You know, it's such a cliche and they say, oh, the money will come. But yeah, it's true. The money kind of comes and it doesn't. And if you're, you know, as long as you don't need to be a billionaire, whatever it is, the money will come. People will pay you to be a painter or a singer or a programmer or whatever if you really love what you're doing. So it's great it, advice. Yeah. Uh, finish with these next few last four questions. What's your go-to karaoke song? <laughs> no. Oh, I'd have to sing it. wonder if I can guess. <laughs> I, I don't know. You could, you could try to guess. Let's see. You're just too good to be true. Can't take my eyes off of you. Wow. You'd be like heaven to touch. Oh, I love you so much. Well, that's much. the first time we've had a live rendition on the, on the show, so that's great. <laughs> I love you, baby. And if it's quite all right. <laughs> that's the one I could try to go to. There you go. Uh -huh. I think that's a good one. Elaine, I think we need to organize a... A karaoke night out. <laughs> All right. Um, the best Netflix, Amazon, Apple series that you've seen recently? Um, what have I seen recently? I liked um, Fleabag was great. That was on Amazon, um, I think. Part two. She's, oh, there's a new part? There's oh, a new part? If part two is better than part one. Oh, okay. So Fleabag. Yeah, series two. Series two, I should two. say. Yeah. Fleabag was great. And... Um, I saw the Apple series about mor Morning Show. Morning Show, that was great. That was surprising. Yeah. You know, it got surprising at the yeah. end. What's the one about the, um, like the Murdoch media empire? Succession. Mm -hmm. That's pretty good. Yeah, that's yeah, right. That's that one. Actually, the writing is crazy weird, funky, cool, weird. Yeah, that's a, the writing in that is great. Those characters are so off the wall. Okay. What book would you like us to offer uh, listeners that come up with the best comments in the comment section? <laughs> It's not a good question for me, you know. I'm not, um, I don't read a lot of books, you know. I read trashy spy novels. Okay. <laughs> so, so that's, you know, that's not really the best topic for me. I get much of my media consumption is visual stuff. I read the paper a lot because those bite-sized things I can deal with, but I uh, I can't get through a, a serious book. I mean, I've gotten through, I've got through Fountainhead, for God's sake. You know, I've done that, but I'm not an avid, like I don't read a book a month like a lot of people. Well, given you talked about persistence, we'll probably say Angela Duckworth's Grit, because oh, that's okay. one. I'll have, to read, I'll have to read, read it because I, yeah, yeah. I don't know it. And then final question, who should we interview next? Oh, definitely Amy Brown. Amy Brown is a friend of mine for 20 plus years. She is a... She hates this word, but she is the doula to the kind of the stars. She's a birth consultant and she does some unbelievable work. Like if you and your wife or whatever are thinking of having a child where you're in the midst of pregnancy or whatever, she holds your hand through the entire, 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 entire process, short of catching the baby. 
And she has some remarkable freaking stories. Like I can't drop names, but she has some very famous clients. And without using names, I'll say that like, you know, she delivered a baby, you know, on the Williamsburg Bridge in a taxi cab, this kind of stuff. Um, wow. But she is really smart and interesting. And uh, she's a painter by, you know, her her training was painting. And somewhere along the line, I think after she had her own kid, she went into this world. And um, yeah, she's actually starting a podcast about this, about what she does. Perfect. But I think she'd be great. She's yeah. very lively, fun, interesting, kooky. Uh -huh. <laughs> she's great. I would recommend Amy Brown. Okay. Well, um, we'll ask you to make an email introduction at some point and uh, we'll follow up with you. Right. Well, I'd just like to uh, thank you um, for the time and your generosity uh, for your questions and acknowledge you for your honesty and vulnerability in discussing what you've discussed Thanks. and for the inspiration you are to people that uh, maybe don't believe that moving between different parts of your life and changing career and changing direction and moving forward with out necessarily a, a rigorous plan works, but I think you're proof that it can work. It's a passion and, and with and with persistence and passion. So keep up the good work. And we look forward to seeing Artbridge <laughs> everywhere. Uh, everywhere. I hope so. Exactly. <laughs> so thank you very much. Thank you so much, Mark. Okay. okay. If you like the show, please subscribe and ideally give us a five star rating and a review because it helps more people find us. Just go to iTunes, Spotify, or your favorite podcast player to listen and subscribe. This show is an Impossible Network production and is produced by Bettina McKaylee and Elaine Castillo-Keller. But for now, be curious, be creative, and seek out serendipity. See you next time.